Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Welcome to the URM Podcast. My guest today is someone who you really should already know about and requires no introduction, but on the off chance that you don't know who he is, let me tell you. Garth Richardson is one of the most prolific names in the audio world. He was trained by his father, Jack Richardson, who worked with Alice Cooper, The Guess Who, and Bob Seger, among many, many others. Garth spent his teenage years assisting on major albums for artists working with his father. His work can still be heard on radio stations across the world, including tracks from bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nickelback, Motley Crue, Rage Against the Machine, Rise Against, Chevelle, Testament, and too many more to name. Garth also, with partners Bob Ezrin and Kevin Williams, founded the Nimbus School of Recording in Vancouver around 2009. And it is one of the legit recording schools out there. You know how I am about uh, brick-and-mortar recording schools and how I think most are a ripoff. His isn't. I'm going to shut up now. I present you Garth Richardson. Garth Richardson, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, yeah, it's going to be fun. This is probably the fastest that I have ever gotten on Skype and straight to recording with somebody before. <laughs> Why? Why is that? Is it because, uh, you know what, uh, they're having a hard time doing this kind of stuff? Or No, it's not that. It's usually there's like 10 minutes of like chit chat and just oh. shit. And like, I love this. We just got on and within two minutes, we're just into it. Well, you have to realize that my father, when he was doing records in the old days, he said noon. Noon meant you were sitting at the console and you were hitting play. Yeah. Not noon, showing up and have a coffee, maybe get some breakfast, you know, chat for like about an hour. He, he was like, let's go. So, you know what? That's my thing. I really do respect that. I honestly wish that more of the uh, music industry operated that way. I have this little theory that while, you know, especially in that era where downloading wrecked everything, that yeah, the biggest did. enemy to the music industry is its own work ethic, usually, in my opinion. Well, you want to hear something funny. Everybody from Canada kind of has that self kind of has that self-defeatist attitude to where we think we are not as good 
as the people from from the states. You guys are awesome. Yeah, so we always tend to work harder. It's strange, right? Interesting. Is that kind of just like bred in in a weird way? Yeah. Is it just a cultural thing? It is because if you look at who's come out of Canada, we got Bob Rock, we got Bob Ezzard, we got Danny Langlois, we got Mike Fraser, we, we, we got Randy Staub, and it goes on and on and on, you know? It's just that we always worked harder. Man, Canada actually has a great lineage of incredible productions and producers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's true. When you actually start pointing it out, it's like, wow, that is actually pretty impressive. Yeah. You guys don't get enough credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We do have Justin Bieber, so, you know. True, uh, true. That new single of his, I wanted to hate it. I really wanted to hate it, but it's the hookiest, most simplest song in the world. It works. Oftentimes, I feel like with artists like that, I get this inner desire to hate them because of their fans right more than their actual music <laughs> right i get that and then i find myself hearing their music and it's like hmm how do i reconcile this with myself i kind of like it i don't want to like it but i do yeah same the same feeling it's like hmm this really is a good song but i don't want to like it but you know what i do it's strange. It's something funny in the heavy music scene mm -hmm. is that the bands that I've noticed are the most hated tend to be the biggest. So what I always wondered was, are all these haters, do they have, back in the CD days, do they have secret copies of all these albums? Remember bands like Slipknot or Revenge Sevenfold yep. just getting yep. so much hate, but yet these bands are going multi-platinum. Yeah. So somewhere there's a disconnect between reality and uh, the way people are talking about it in public. Well, you know what? Name me anybody that you know, and this band sold 10 to 12 million records. Anybody you know that has a copy of Hootie and the Blowfish? <laughs> that was a massive record. Oh, man, it, it was ridiculously large. I know, but I don't know anybody that has a, a copy of it, right? It's like, it's like, here's a band that everybody hated, but yet somewhere 12 to 15 million copies were sold. And you know what? Great songs. I believe that a lot of people just hid their CDs. <laughs> true, true. Okay. I'm yeah. convinced. Okay. I'm okay. convinced. <laughs> I believe that. I mean, it is statistically impossible to meet everybody who could possibly purchase one of these albums. I still feel like a lot of people in certain scenes will just not talk about things that they like because they don't want to get called out, especially when you're a teenager. You know, you don't want to necessarily get uh, hated for something you like. So I think yeah. it's easier for a lot of people to just say, that band sucks, and then own the record anyways. Yep, true. Listen in the car. Agreed. So you've mentioned that uh, audio production isn't a job or even a career, but it's a lifestyle that you've got to eat and breathe in order to work. What do you think is, uh, if you could sum it up, the mentality necessary to be an effective producer in 2020, moving on? Okay, 2020, well, it's kind of like 7-11. It never closes. You kind of have to be... Literally breathing, eating, sleeping it. But you also have to understand oh, what a song is. I get all these young kids coming up to me saying, you know that I am a producer. And I go, oh, so tell me, what does that mean? He said, well, you know what, dude? I make sick beats. And I'm going, 
that means you are a beat maker. You are not a producer. So what, what my feeling is they need to understand exactly what that lifestyle means because you have to take care of everything. The studio, the managers, the bands, the band's girlfriends, actually call them Yoko Honos. <laughs> uh, you know, you have to have an actual grasp of everything that goes on to make somebody's, someone's actually music, you know. And all these young kids just think because that you have a laptop means that you are a producer. And you know what? That is wrong. Well, that's just one small part of the equation. Yeah, but that's a lot of people that think that that's what it is, which is sad. What I wonder is if someone actually does think that that's all there is to it, how are they going to survive in a world where you do have to deal with budgets, psychology, yeah, deadlines, like all these all these different things that actually are very real. Yeah, I, I don't understand how you would possibly figure that stuff out on your own because. I knew I needed somebody else to teach me. It goes by to what we talked about the other day, is that I had some insane, actually, mentors. I had my dad, who did the Guess Who, and Alice Cooper, and Bob Seger. I then then had, actually, Bob Ezrin, who did The Wall, and on and on and on. And then I also had Michael Wagner, who did some sick, sick bands in the 80s. And it's like, they all taught me that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that you have to care. You really have to show up and you have to pay attention to every aspect of everything every day. Do you feel like maybe that level of mentorship is something that's getting lost a little bit in this modern age? Yeah, yeah. Do you know why? Because everybody's in their bedrooms. And two... Nobody can afford to pay you anymore because of the budgets are getting smaller and smaller. There's kind of this big divide happening. It's kind of all over the world to where there is no more middle class. You have to begin at the bottom, then you work your way up into the middle class, and if you have a hit, then you go up into the top class. There is no more. There is no more middle class. There's no more. Um, you know, spending six weeks on a record, you will now spend it every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you'll take off the week because the band has to work. You have to have a regular day job. And then you get back to it again the next Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, right? So it's kind of the, it's kind of the actual weekend warrior thing. When you were coming up, was there more of an artist middle class? Oh, totally. Totally. There, there were records being made every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But from every aspect of every budgetary uh, band to where some bands had actually 40,000, 60,000, 80,000, you know, there was always labels finding new talent. Mm -hmm. Now you kind of have to get your record done for the label uh, to actually look at you. How would you suggest that someone who wants to learn this stuff, and I agree, because, I mean, I'm a little younger than you, but I still remember in the 90s when I was growing up that there were studios everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Yeah, There's a lot of bedroom studios now, but what I mean is there were commercial facilities yeah. everywhere. When my band wanted to record, it was my high school band, but still, I re just remember 1993 looking up where to go and there were like 50 places yeah. just here in Atlanta. Now 
there are like 50 bedroom studios or more, but legit studios, there's maybe three in this town. Yeah, it's sad. Because you know what? When I grew up, uh, there was a sign that was on my dad's studio a control room door. It said, closed session, dial, dial eight on the intercom. When that door closed, that was a vault that, mm-hmm. that, that would close. And you would be in that room for 12 to 14 hours. And then if you had to have a pee break, you would leave, go pee, and you get back. And there was this level of a commitment. And there was that magic. Magic was actually happening in that room to where there were no computers, there were no Apple C, Apple V, you know, you know, there was no beat detective. You played. You were this group that literally played as a group and, and it was that vibe. And you would have all of these engineers coming in and you have all of these producers coming in and you would pick all of these insane techniques that that they would do, and you go, that's a good one. I'm going to put that into my brain. Oh, that's not a good one. I don't like that. I'm just going to put that over to the left. And you would have this incredible mentorship coming at you every single day to where you would learn, and you would learn not what to do and learn what to do. You can't do that if you're in your bedroom. Yeah, it, I mean, there's there's literally no way to do that. Yeah. So it sounds to me like back in that day, the way that people got good was, like you said, they were getting the information and the mentorship on what to do and what not to do coming at them from all angles. And I guess nowadays, if all you are is in a bedroom, you don't have the opportunity to learn, you know, best practices from as many people as possible. Is that why you started Nimbus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We basically Bob and I were having a conversation. I guess it's almost twenty twenty two years ago. I actually moved back up to Vancouver, and I'd done like a whole bunch of records here. And I called called him up and said, "I have just fired my thirty fourth runner or my thirty fourth second engineer because they didn't know what to do." They, you know, they knew all the quick keys, actually Pro Tools. And I said, Bob, how we were trained by my father, we have to do something about this because our way of actually working and our way of actually being mentored is lost. So Nimbus started and Bob had just literally let go, I think, like about 10 people because they, they, they didn't get it. So Nimbus is all about being mentored and being shown how to do it the right way. If the students or Nimbus walk away with one skill from their time there, what would you hope that would be? They literally know how to hang. That's a good one. That is the most important gift that you can give someone. So this is like the 260th episode. Oh, nice. So I've talked to a lot of people, made lots of records myself, had a lot of people on URM doing now the mix. Like I know a lot of producers and I've talked to a lot of producers and it's funny when we talk about this topic, everybody who has any career always says the same thing, that that's the most important thing anybody could develop because Skills, engineering skills, you can teach somebody. But uh, the way 
how to hang, that is really, really tough and, and will make or break you at the end of the day. You know what? That is the most important uh, thing that you can have, the best, the best skill. When I was actually, let's see, 15, 16, 16 years old, I used to go down to my dad's studio and clean. I was, uh, uh, I had his company called actually Gar, it was called Gar Janitorial Services. And my job was to go down after school and clean the bathrooms and clean the floors and vacuum and dust. And then after I was done, I would go hang out in the control room. And I got to watch the first Peter Gabriel record being made with actually Tony Levin, Larry Fast, Robert Fripp, Steve Hunter, Peter Gabriel, Alan Schwartzberg, Tony Levin, just to name a few. And if I didn't know how to hang... I would not have been inside of that room to watch that insane thing being made, right? And and I used to go in, and I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't say anything, and I'd just be there. If anybody wanted something, I would go get it. I'd come back, and I'd give it to them, and I'd go back into my corner. And I would just kind of just hang. And so many people that I have had on my dates, I would go to the guitar player. Well, I think you need to, and then my second engineer or my runner would go, well, I think, and I turn and say, I think you need to shut the fuck up. And he looked, <laughs> and, you know, and they look at me and I, and I go, dude, you know, but I would always make sure after everybody had left the room, I'd say, come here. Don't you ever open your, your mouth again. Your job is to be seen, but not heard. And that was what my dad taught me. That was what Bob taught me. And that, that's what everybody else that I was mentored by, you know, you are to be seen, but not heard. If the building is about to burn down, you can speak up, <laughs> you know? I mean, and people will ask you questions when they're ready for you to speak up. I think that people who might be hearing this who have never been in the environment might think that it's harsh. But the thing that you need to understand if you've never been in that environment is somebody speaking out of turn who's not, you know, running the session or the artist can completely destroy the vibe in uh, oh. in two sentences. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, to where somebody could just say something or somebody could have like an awkward laugh because we are dealing with very sensitive, uh, creative people. Yep. And if somebody feels uncomfortable, but they have to go and sing a song or play a solo, they're going to get freaked out. They might not tell you about it. Like artists yep. are not necessarily the best communicators always. No. So part of a producer's job is to be able to understand where the artist is at, even if they're not saying it. And one thing is that you're right. This music is very, very personal to them. They're very sensitive creatures. And if someone that they already don't know and that, you know, they didn't hire the intern, they hired you. Um, you hired the intern. So this yeah. person who's one step removed from the person that they hired, who happens to be there while they're about to uh, get vulnerable makes them feel at all uncomfortable. Yeah. That could be it for that day. And they may not even tell you about it. So you have to be on it, in my opinion. Yeah, there's a very funny story. Uh, do you know who Dave uh, Dave Ray Vogelvie is? He mixed the Carly Rae Jepsen Call Me Baby single. Not familiar with him, but I'd love to hear the story. Okay, he was in Skinny Puppy, right? So Oh, oh, awesome. So he was doing the session... 
And uh, the band was poor, so he brought in some snacks, some chips, some you know drinks, some you mm-hmm. know peanuts, pretzels. And this runner comes in. The band's on the floor playing the song. The song is finished. Uh, they come in. The runner is lying across the couch and just eating all of the food. <laughs> And then he goes to me, sorry, not to me, but the Ravy goes, you know, I'm not sure that that's a really good compression level on the snare drum. Oh, man. <laughs> and Rave looked over at the second engineer and said, he's out. The second engineer said, hey, dude, come here. Get your coat. He said, hey, man, thank you. Thank you very much for, for coming by. It's been nice. And he was out the door. Faster than he came in. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so getting back to your thing is, Hanging is the most important quality. We literally teach our students how to how to be, how to be decent human beings. That's the best thing that we can teach them. I know lots of mixers, producers who, when they talk about hiring an assistant or taking on an intern, they almost, if they had the choice of someone who's a really cool hang, but maybe not as skilled versus someone who has all the skills but is an awkward hang, like 100% of them that I've talked to will pick the person who's the better hang but not as skilled. Yes, because you uh, you can teach them the skills. Yeah, it's crazy how much it matters. Yeah, yeah. So this is something that was basically that you just figured out as a kid. So yeah. you just you grew up in this environment. Yeah. It seems like you probably didn't even need to be really taught because kids learn by imitating. So you're in an environment where people know how to behave and therefore you end up knowing how to behave. Yeah. Is that kind of right? Yeah. I always knew that I was always go out to, to the studio with my dad and I was fascinated. It was almost like a hockey team because every single hockey player talks about when they leave the game, what they, what they miss miss the most is being inside of that actual dressing room with the guys, right? Uh, when I went to the studio, it was like hanging out with the guys in the dressing room because there was this wonderful camaraderie between uh, the engineer, the producer, the actual second engineer, and the band. And it was just, you felt part of a team. Do you still get that feeling on records? Yeah, I do. I do. I just did this band from from actually Holland called, called Kensington. And we spent three months here and we had five different actually studios set up and there was this camaraderie of us, you know, you know, actually getting up and we'd have one guy working on some actual song lyrics. We'd have someone doing keyboards, someone else would be doing some programming. And there was this amazing feeling that they were all part of this amazing team. And when you're on your laptop in your bedroom, you can't actually do that. So by five studios, you mean, so there were like five independent rooms yeah, with like up. their own workstations going. Yep. Just out of curiosity, on a project like that, where yeah. there's all that going on, mm-hmm. how do you make sure that you don't have versioning errors between the different sessions? Like, how do you make sure that everybody stays current? Okay, because basically we have the mothership, mm-hmm. and it happens to be the main, the main extra hard drive, and uh, the engineer is solely responsible to make sure that that mother, mothership is always up to date. 
so that all of the files coming from all the other rooms always at the end of each day show up in this room. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, because basically everything gets here, it's backed up on three different hard drives so that we have three safeties and then now we have the master. Because if you, uh, you know what, in the old days, if somebody stepped on a piece of tape, you would, you, 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 you actually get the ironing board, a towel, and you'd mm-hmm. iron the tape back. And you'd like flat tape on, go, okay, guys, we're good. In this modern age, if your hard drive crashes, it's gone. There is no, there is no, uh, oh, we can get out the iron and, you know. <laughs> but you could try that. You could try, you could, you could, you could try that, but you know what? It's gone. So, 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 um, so we always have the actual gate, uh, the actual gatekeeper. And that person is my engineer. And he is solely responsible to make sure that all of the audio from any of the rooms ends up in the master hard drive and then it's safetyed. So one person handles all that. One person handles, yeah. Yeah, man, I can imagine that if more than one person was handling it, that's inviting chaos. Exactly. So is it this sort of thing, like the session starts when it starts and it ends when it ends, and then as soon as it's over, then his day's not over. He then compiles everything, Yes. makes sure that the mothership is totally up to date, and then the next day, everybody has the right starting point. Yeah, has a new version. Yeah. Yeah, we'll give them lists at the end of the night saying, okay, can you do like a rough, extra rough mix with all the new parts? Would you give it to this person? And that person needs this, so would you do that? And then we just have a whole list of it. So it's, it's kind of like we are, we are the hub. That's a cool way to work. I, I like that too because... Yeah. It invites everybody to be creative and it, it gives the opportunity for nobody to get burned out. Yeah, yeah, it's fun, actually. Yeah, and you avoid certain problems like uh, like the, the typical problem with vocals on rock and metal records of saving them for the very, very end and then possibly burning out oh. the vocalists. Like, okay, can we talk about that? Yes, let's talk about that. Okay, so what everybody seems to basically forget the most important part of any record is the singer. Yes. The singer is God. The singer is going to make or he is going to actually break your record. Uh, When I was actually second engineer a long time ago and what you just talked about, they would wait for the last three days. So dumb. Singer would have to sing 12 songs, do all the doubles, do all the harmonies in three to four days. And you could see these singers, as as it's getting closer to the end of the record, you could see the stress on their faces. Yeah, of course. And it's just like, and I've watched that and watched that and watched that. So what I do now, and I have done this for like the longest time, this is on the other smaller records, but as soon as I'm done drums, and it's all ready to go. I will put down actual guide bass and actually guide, guide guitars and have the singer start singing songs because he gets into the flow of it. You may want to go back and redo the first song you do, but you're starting it from right when you're beginning the record that the singer's singing because you're going to have to change actually lyrics maybe. You may have to come up with new melodies, but if you're doing it in the last three three days, the pressure on him is astronomical and why people still do that 
is beyond me. Yeah, and not just all those changes, but also it affords you the ability to give the singer days off. Yeah. It's crucial. Yeah, because you know what? It's kind of like a drummer who, when you bring them into the studio, and I've seen people make, make drummers play for 12 to 14 hours a day, and I, and I go, to, go to the producer. I go, what show have you ever seen an actual drummer playing 14-hour show? It doesn't happen. They, they actually may play three hours. Every drummer can only play for three hours maximum, maybe four. But eight to 10 hours to 12 hours a day, that's fucking ridiculous. We are dealing with human beings. You know, I found that with drummers, sometimes they were the ones who wanted to play for 12 hours. And so it would put me in this weird situation where I didn't want to bum them out because like you said the vibe is so important so I didn't I yeah. didn't want to bum them out or frustrate them and they're super motivated to just keep going and crushing and how to communicate yeah. to them that the best thing to do would be to stop for the day so that we can yeah. do every song at full intensity that was always a very interesting thing for me to try to tackle yeah how would you get through to people? when they want to be the ones to keep going? Well, basically, you, your first clue is your levels are not as hot. Mm -hmm. So so that means his arms and legs are getting tired. So I always, when I'm doing drum tracks, I'm always looking, looking at the meters and just kind of going, oh, he's beginning to get tired. Then uh, the next thing that goes is, uh, if he's doing double kicks or or doing kicks, he isn't as actually crisp. Yep. So I always go, hey, dude, how you feeling? Are you getting tired? Tired yet? And no, man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I go, okay, okay. You know what? Let's just do one more take. And then after that take, you go, hey, you know what? You see all of my gray gray hairs because I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> I think we should stop. Because I feel that you're not as good as you were earlier on today. And I really want this to be great. So it's all about making sure that they have insane, you know, that you're giving them actually props because you're saying, you know, dude, you nailed it today. You're now tired. Let's stop and let's actually pick it, pick it up tomorrow. And you know what? About like about like an hour later, you go, hey, man, how you doing? Man, you were right. I am tired. I go, hey, dude, go and have a hot tub. Go for a walk. Go, go have a nap. But you know what? You nailed it. And it's all about that. You, 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 you did a great, a great job today. Yeah. And, you know, if they feel like you're not trying to rush them, but you're, you're there with them, their partner, trying to get the very yeah. best out of them. I find that that helps them chill. Yeah, I think the pressure that you were talking about that vocalists have. Some I've seen lots of drummers put that on themselves, too. And oh, just to be a good drummer, you have to be kind of an intense maniac. Anyway, so yeah. they're just <laughs> so it's kind of like you know, kind of like riding a wild horse in a way. You got to yeah. tame it just a little bit. Well, have you ever watched, uh, um, uh, you always see the drummer just about when he's almost done all of his drum tracks and you can feel and see this weight on the shoulders. Yes. The day after they're done, they, they come in, they're smiling, they're happy, they're, you know, like, I'm alive. And mm -hmm. like, you go, ah, you're you're done your drum tracks. Yeah, man, that was really hard. And I go, I go no, you did great. Because everybody, because we are human beings, put so much pressure on ourselves to be great. And nobody wants nobody wants to go in and 
and fail. Everybody wants to be praised. It's hard making records. It's hard playing drums because live, it's live and it's gone. Inside of the, inside of the studio, everybody around the world is going to listen to it and they are going to comment and they, they are going to basically call you out on any shit that you forever do, right so forever yeah the one thing that we have to say to the young producers it's your job that you never show the band that you are that you are really stressed out that you are worried because if you do that then every band member will see that and i guess what's going to happen they are all going to be stressed out too so you have to show them confidence. And if you're stressed out, go outside, scream and yell, you know, actually punch a wall and then come back in and go, okay, guys, let's get back to work, right? <laughs> you know, so that's a very big, big thing is you have to be in control and you have to make sure that you do not show that you are actually snapping. I think that's important for leadership in general. I've noticed that one of my biggest Regrets has been any time that I've let my guard down when I'm in a leadership capacity and let people know that I'm stressed because it is a bit like a virus. Just to bring up something current, it is a bit like a virus when you let people know that when the leader lets people know that that he or she is feeling feeling the pressure you'll notice that pressure then starts to spread to everybody else and that vibe you were talking about earlier dies like what a quick way to kill it yeah yeah well uh, look what's happening with this virus happening around the world they've shut down the whole country of italy yep 40 million people so it's like that, that you know that that whole thing is absolutely horrible and it's sad that people are actually dying from it but you know like at a much 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 smaller scale if you show fear and you show stress, then your singer's going to get that, your guitar player's going to get that, and then everybody is going to actually panic. Yeah, it's it's crazy how quickly it happens, too. And then yeah. also, yeah. I can say that I've been in the opposite situation. It's not just in recording. This is like when I, oh, when I was life. running my yeah. band or running the company or, or as a producer, like in... Very, very stressful things would happen. But if I kept a level head about it, not saying be dishonest to anybody, like definitely communicate with everybody, but don't let them feel that stress. Yeah. We always got through everything great and uh, yeah. things ended up okay. Yeah, it's true. Because you know what? Uh, the other word that we have not talked about is trust. I was going to get there. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> That's a fantastic word. Um, you have a great, great actually story. Uh, I was doing doing uh, this one band, and uh, we we were punching in the guitar chords, and you know, you know, you know, chord by chord, tuning, punching, tuning, punching. I get a call from my manager, who who is in New York, that got a call from the record label in actually London, England which got a call from the guitar player who was sitting three to four feet from me. And he was stressing out and he was panicking and he was, you know, like, this is hard work. This is... So I get the phone call. I'm like, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh. Okay, thanks. I said, hey, 
come here, let's go out and have a talk. I actually pulled him out of the room so that nobody else could, you know, know what we're going to be talking about. And I said, I just got a call from my manager, which got a call from Yurik Label, which got a call from you that you're not happy. And went, yeah, this is really hard. I, I said, okay, if you and I cannot talk to each other, then that means there is no trust. And if we don't have any trust, then we should stop now because we have to be on the same page and we have to be able to talk to each other. And you don't have to call somebody in England to call somebody in New York to call me to tell me that you're having a hard time with with it. So right, right there, we, we do not have trust. Are you happy with how things sound? He says, it sounds brilliant. I said, it's hard work. It's really hard work. I said, okay, so how do we have to work moving forward so that you you do not freak out? He said, can we just not work as long hours and maybe take longer breaks? I went, yeah, that's done. But there's that word trust that you have to be able to actually talk to each other and, and to have open minds. But my job is also to be able to see that actually prior, 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 actually prior to it actually happening. You know, and that's a skill. Well, people will put off signs. They'll communicate it. Like we were saying earlier, a musician may not always tell you. No. It, it, sometimes it does take the phone call to London and then the phone call to New York and then loops back to you to yeah. just say, I yeah. need 15-minute yeah. breaks instead of seven-minute breaks. But yeah, sometimes they just won't talk because they're they're sensitive or they're weird or they feel they're grateful for how awesome things sound and they love it and they don't want to fuck it up or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for why they might not communicate. Yeah. yeah. And the quicker that you can figure out that they're not communicating something and then find a, a stress-free way to talk about it, the better. But yeah. how do you spot it when they're not talking about it? You know what? You, uh, you can always tell by their body language. That's a good one. And also, when you're talking to somebody and they can't look you in the eyes, mm -hmm. that's the first one I see. Yeah, just shoegazing. Yeah, they're like, um, yeah, you know, um, I go, okay, dude, what's wrong? What's going on? And then, you know, at that point, you do have to put on your actual child psychology hat. You know, and you kind of have to basically let them talk. Uh, it is one band, and this is probably my, my time favorite story. I'm at a band here, and uh, the actual drummer and uh, the guitar player singer were at, at odds. They, you know, everything that we were doing, they would fight over it. And we'd be getting this a guitar sound, and then uh, the drummer would come in, and they would argue about the sound for like two hours. And after like the second day, I was like, oh, guys, we don't have the time, and we don't have the budget so that you guys can argue about you don't like his guitar sound. So I actually pulled the whole band over into a room and I had them all sitting there. And he went, Pete, Tom has something that he would like to say. Tom, say it. And Tom would say how he felt. And I said, Pete, tell me what Tom just said. I went, no, that's not what he said. Tom, say it again to Pete. <laughs> and Tom would say it again to Pete. I said, okay, now, Pete, tell me what he just said, and we spent two hours in a room doing a, actually a therapy session because uh, the two were 
at each other's heads and they both wanted to hurt each other and we finally calmed it down. They got to say their piece. We came up with a really wonderful way of actually moving forward. But but it's like we, at that point, found found that word trust, that they, they could do that now. Just out of curiosity, yeah. was it as if one, like they were speaking two different languages, like one person is saying, this is my idea. And then the other person was interpreting it their own way completely, it sounds like, from what you just said. I think it was more that they had a, a they had a record that they had a gigantic budget and it tanked. And now they were doing this new record and they wanted to make sure that it didn't tank. Mm-hmm. So they had this whole fear. Yeah. And of course, of course they, they were panicking. I think. And they probably each had their own theories as to why the other person was responsible for it tanking. And so every time that they would give an idea, they would run that through the filter of, well, you fucked that record up. And so this (laughs) idea is going to fuck this one up too. Yeah. So I got to, you know, I had to be the actual counselor and had them all talking. And it was like, you could see this huge black cloud finally leaving. So you said you figured out a beautiful way forward working wise. What was that? What was the solution? Yeah. Uh, the solution was the people uh, that you hired know what they're doing. Let us do our job. That is trust, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because so many people do not understand that, that we have been let in to, to give birth to their child. I think sometimes. Uh, musicians lose sight of that too. It's really weird because they're the ones who hire you, right? Yeah. But maybe you're so deep into the project or the pressure is so great that they forget that that's what they hired you to do. Yeah. And there's a reason. This all goes back to it's very stressful making records. It's so fucking stressful. (laughs) And bands get stressed out and they panic and they don't think straight. For instance, when I did the first... The first Rage record. When we were near the end of the record, Tim, the bass player, was so stressed out, he was shitting shitting out blood. I mean, imagine the pressure. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Like, like, like you know, and it's like he, he came in and said, I'm shitting out blood. I went, dude, are you okay? I'm just stressed. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. 
You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. I mean, stress is a killer. That's been... It is, yeah. That has yeah. been proven. It's a known fact, yeah. Speaking of uh, how to deal with different personality types, you know, we were talking about how to help people understand something like, you know, the drummer being tired but not wanting to realize it or someone shoegazing and not making eye contact. Here's one that I've always had trouble with. Maybe you have a a solution, a method for dealing <laughs> with this. You know, those types that will yes you no matter what, they'll always say that things are great. They will look you in the eye. They will smile, but something about it tells you that they're lying, that something is actually wrong. And then you end up being right. You find out six months later that they were pissed off the whole time. You find this out because you get the call from the manager or something like, keep trying to talk to this right. person and all signals are that everything's fine, but then you get the phone call anyways. How do you communicate with those? Okay, so so basically you have your team. Mm-hmm. Your team, uh, because usually bands always actually gravitate to somebody that has no kind of authority. And they will speak their mind. Like your intern or something. My intern or my second engineer or my engineer, because they always become close mm-hmm. to them because I, I'm the guy that always says no. Yeah, <laughs> right? dad. I'm, I'm that dad yeah. guy, right? So I always have my actual meeting with my team is if you hear anything, any any discontent, any anything that is negative that is coming out of their mouths, let me know. Because bands will shit talk. Oh, the, oh yeah, yeah. The, yeah, they will. But I have also done that for many of, of the other producers that I've engineered for, or I was the r- r- runner for, or I was thinking, and I, you know, and I go, hey, just just I want to let you know. That I just heard this, and you may not be aware of it, but you should know. And again, it, it all boils down to that word trust. Man, I did that too, actually, when I was working under some people. Uh, and yeah, they didn't ask me to. I did it because I felt like they should know it. I was always afraid to tell them, but I felt like if I didn't, then I would be, I'd be doing them a serious disservice to not let them know yeah. that the singer from the band is wants to leave if this one thing doesn't yeah. change. Like, you should know that. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it's all about trust. It's 
it's also always knowing what what is going on around you at all times because your job is to deliver the band's record. And if your second engineer completely wipes a song, the label doesn't call him and go, what the fuck did you no, do? it's your fault. <laughs> it's my fault. So yeah. I tell everybody, the buck stops here. And my team knows that I have their back. They also have to have mine, right? It's kind of like if you don't deal with it right right away, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it blows up. But if you deal with it as soon as it happens, it, it goes away. Some guy I used to work under told me that same idea about when to exert authority as a producer because his philosophy was that you don't ever want to be a dick. You don't want an adversarial relationship ever, but they still need to know that you're in charge. And so if you're a pushover for say the first four weeks and then it all builds up inside of you and then one day on the fourth week, they just cross the line and you explode and it comes out of nowhere, you might fuck up the rest of the session. Whereas if... There was something happening on day one that's out of bounds for what you think is okay working-wise, and you address it right then and there, then it's yeah. over before it can develop into anything further. And also, you've established boundaries, and uh, that's that's essential, I think. Yeah, well, the funny thing is when, when my father used to walk, walk into the room, you knew he was in charge. When actually Bob Ezrin walked walked into the room, you knew he was in charge. When Michael Wagner walked walked into the room, you knew he was in charge. So you kind of have to have that persona that you are in charge. You are solely responsible for getting the record done. If anything happens, again, if anything happens, deal with it right then and there because if you don't, it's going to fester and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and grow, and grow you know. So, and you also have to, the other thing is you never become buddy-buddies with the band. Yeah, that's hard. How do you walk that line, though, between being cool but not getting buddy-buddy? Right. What I do is I always have one night out with the band before we start, and I buy drinks, and we get fucked up. We drink, and, you know, we have Crown Royal, and we have beer, and we have champagne, and we have whatever, and we have the best day. And then we, we, we get down to business. And after that point, like, I never party with the band all, all, all the time. When we're done, I'll do the same thing. Mm -hmm. We will have a, you know, it's like, guys, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'll buy them Crown Royal again, and we will drink and have a great time and get hammered and hug and kiss. And, you know, guys, that was a, a great time. But from the day that you start with the first sound until you are done your job, you have to have a professional thing. Because if you're, if you, if you don't do that, the band will slowly begin to not basically respect you. Yeah. And you have to have that a professional. Well, they'll start to think of you as like a hangout buddy yeah, rather than the boss of the session. Exactly. And what's interesting that I think I, I want people listening who don't have that much experience with this to understand is that even if they're hanging out with you and it's cool, if you lose that authority over the session and they lose respect over you, they might think you're a perfectly cool guy, but... On a professional level, that'll be that. That'll be over. And bands are very capable of of liking somebody 
but not wanting to work with them. Yeah. That's a very normal thing. I mean, anyone in the industry has heard nice guy, but, or nice guys, but nice guy, but means something yeah. sucks. Something sucked. What's like when you're going out on a date and you really like the chick and she, and she said, I like you like my brother. And you're like, oh. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> you know, dead. You know, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, no, again, I said this isn't a job, but it is a job. And you have to act like a pro. You do have to have a line. My dad used to, whenever somebody in a band would actually cross a line, he would always look over his glasses at, at you. And when that happened, you went, oh, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> and he would just go up one side of the guy and, and, and she down the other side. So you also have to slap the hand, right? Got to be in charge. Hey, just out of <laughs> yeah. curiosity, when you said that, like your dad or Bob Ezrin or Michael Wagner walk in a room and everybody knows it, what do you think that is? You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to say it has a lot to do with ego. Mm-hmm. I have it. Bob does, ha, has it. My dad had it. I go. Wagner had it. You know, has it? You know, you know, you know. It's all about. If you show up in the room and you show up and you're kind of like your actual body language is slumping over and you're kind of like, nobody is going to pay like attention. But if you walk, walk into the room to where you own this place, they're going to think that you're in charge. So healthy ego. It's interesting because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's obviously the side of ego that turns people off where it's more delusional. And arrogant, but I've yeah. always thought that yeah. if you can back up confidence, then it's all good. Yeah, well, it's also basically a respect that you basically respect the band. Yeah, you know what? In my earlier years, I probably wasn't the most uh, the most uh, the most respectful uh, producer. You know, I was very uh, determined, and I was very you know what. I always wanted to make great stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and some times I would plow over over the drummer or I'd plow over the bass player or I'd plow over the guitar player. But I've learned. I'm much more calm and, you know. Just out of curiosity, uh, when yes. you <laughs> would find yourself plowing over people, sometimes yeah. though, weren't the results magical? Yes. So where's the line? <laughs> I was doing this one uh, record in London, England, and the drummer showed up. It's a punk band. It's a hardcore punk, punk, punk. And the drummer shows up with a little splash cymbal. He shows up with a china, and he shows up with a bell. I looked at the guys in the band and went, what up with the uh, splash, the bell, and the china? And they went, yeah, we're not happy. I said, okay, I got it. So <laughs> we, we were doing we, we were doing the first song, and he's playing thing, and he and he goes and, and he hits the China symbol, and as he's playing, 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 playing the song, I walk over, I unscrew the symbol, <laughs> I take it off, I Brutal. I actually hand it to his tech, and when the song stops, I look at him and go. There is no China symbols in punk, and then we're then, you know we get that song done. The next song he goes and he, and he goes to about to hit the bell, and I'm standing by you know like on the floor of them, and I shake my head, and he doesn't hit the bell, and I go over, I take off the bell, I hand it over to his tech, and I go, "There's no bell in in actually punk <laughs> rock." Well, 
After about actually halfway through the record <laughs> of actually doing the, doing the drum tracks, he went over to where he was staying and he smashed every plate, cursing my name. He fucking hated my guts. Now, I had heard because I had extra people there and, you know, they came back and said, oh man, he is fucking destroying his suite. And so he, he, he came back over and after we were done all of his parts, we hit play and we played them all back. And at the end I said, hey, I'm sorry that I was hard on you, but listen to what you did. It's phenomenal. And you should be proud of this. And sometimes my job is very difficult, but I have to get what is best for that band, but not for each individual in the in the band. I have to make sure that I'm doing what is for for that band's name. It's kind of like a corporation. What is best for that corporation? You know, and he got it, but he still doesn't like me. <laughs> It reminds me a little bit of when Corey Taylor was talking about working with Rick Rubin. Yeah. Well, he was talking about how Rick made him redo all the vocals on that record they did together, even though, I mean, they had the whole record done. And I yeah. believe at some point he just decided it was all garbage and made him redo everything. Yeah. And I think this was when Corey Taylor was getting sober also. Yeah, because you know what? Maybe he was a better singer when he was all all actually fucked up. It's entirely possible, man. Yeah, yeah. Corey Taylor talked a lot about his intense hatred for him and how he never hated anybody as much as Rick Rubin. And then eventually he loved him because, yeah. because it turned out great. He got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a funny story. My dad was doing Dickie Betts from the Allman Brothers solo record. My dad said, Dickie, when you come in, can you be sober, please? So Dickie went, okay, fine, I'll, I'll be sober. Uh, he had to sing. He couldn't sing a song. And that's a tall ask sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was, he he couldn't sing in tune. He couldn't get the timing. He was so fucking depressed, he left. The next day, he came in, and he was so fucked up to the point of where they had to get... You could get the two big boom mic stands, put foam around it, put it under his armpits to hold him up because he was so fucked up. And he sang eight songs perfectly. Yeah, man, it's... Right? It's unfortunate, man. Yeah, they, they, uh, uh, there's that devil and there's that angel. Yeah. You know? One thing I always tell, or, well, I don't, I don't record anymore, but when I used to, one thing I always used to tell people was... If you're going to get sober, quit smoking, go through a big life change, you know, go vegan, whatever the hell it is, do it at least two months before the record. Don't do it the week of, please. Like, spare spare yeah. us all <laughs> and spare your own record yeah. because yeah. you're going to put everybody, including yourself, through hell. Like, if you have a drug, <laughs> look, I don't want you doing yeah. heroin, but... Don't quit when you're coming into the studio. Quit two months before or not at all. Well, I had a few engineers of mine that they decided halfway through the record that they were going to quit actually smoking. Oh, man. <laughs> and I went, 
No, 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 man. I'm going to quit. It's going to be great. And by day three, they are the biggest assholes in the world. And yeah, they came into the control room, sat down beside them, and I lit, lit up a cigarette. Of course, I don't smoke, and I've never smoked. I lit a cigarette, and I went, oh, God, this tastes so good. Oh. <laughs> and they both got up, and they went out, and they smoked. And then they were probably really nice after that. They were really nice. They were really nice. I said, don't ever quit in the middle of a record that we're doing, doing again, because you are not a very fun, fun, actually person to be with. And they went, I get it. You know, it's like, you know what? You are are absolutely right. If you're going to, if you're going to quit, do it so that you've, that you've had time to get your body used to it. Don't do it when you're going to be doing the absolute most important thing. Yeah, I mean, I encourage anyone who's on something that could kill them to get off of it. But <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. not when we're recording. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Man, that brings up that whole can of worms about the self-destructive behaviors of musicians um, actually helping their creativity. Where do you stand on that? Because I've seen it too, man. I've seen it where people believe that they're not going to be creative without drugs. And I've seen people who actually really suck without them. But at the same time, I'm not interested in having people I'm working with die young. You know, it's terrible. Yeah. It's kind of, you know what, uh, um, I used to have to put put into my, my, uh, my contracts that hit the band is not of sound mind, then then I wouldn't be responsible for the budget. Fair enough. Because if they're doing heroin or smack or speed or cocaine or, you know, there's all of the, like, a plethora of drugs. Again, the label and the managers and the lawyers are saying, it's your responsibility. So for all of you people out there that if you're being paid by somebody to do a job and your singer or your drummer shows up on speed or heroin or coke, let the people that are paying you know this is what is going down. Because if you wait until after, they're going to go, well, how come you didn't tell us? So uh, again, if you, <laughs> you have a small, if you have a small crack in your wall, Fix it then and there, because if you don't, it's going to grow to where to where it's going to fall down. I've done, I did three records in a row. The first, the first one was actually heroin. The second one was heroin and coke and actually vodka. And then the third, the third one, one was speed. And if I had to pick which one to never do again, it'd be speed. Why is that? Because they were crazy. <laughs> it seems like it would be really exhausting. It was like, you know, um, I literally had to, uh, we were doing doing like a guitar part and his nose began bleeding and I had to stuff actually Kleenex up his nose so that the blood wouldn't get on his strings. Yeah. Because they, they were doing so much speed. You know what? If a band's doing heroin, they're going to be falling asleep. If a band's doing coke, man, I love you, man, bro. Speed is a Different, horrible drug. It's, you know, but now too, I tell bands, if you're going to do any drugs, don't. Because up up here, everything is everything is actually laced, right? So yeah. you really have to be a actual fool, right? I don't think anyone 
should be doing street drugs in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I know lots of medical professionals and I'm not anti-drug or anything like that. I don't believe that it's my business what anybody puts in their body and if yeah and I'm not here to judge their <laughs> demons but I will say that I know for a fact that street drugs are laced a lot of the time and yeah you're playing Russian roulette basically yeah now the funny thing was uh band number 2 they were they were doing heroin and coke but the one guy that was doing heroin and coke was actual vegetarian. So it balances out. Well, no, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah, that's true, true, true. I was, I was having like a hamburger and he had the balls to look at me and go, you're, you're not going to put that into your body, are you? <laughs> and I, I looked at him and I went, are you fucking serious? Dude, you're a heroin addict. You're putting that shit in your body and you're telling me to not put beef in mine? That's so funny. It was just like, it was golf clap. Man, you know? I had this girlfriend once who was she was like real hippie uh hippie-ish and um yeah i remember once i was putting on deodorant and uh she was smoking a cigarette we were like outside or something and she was like don't do that it's going to give you cancer it's like saying that as you're exhaling a cigarette puff like what a cigarette yeah I was like, I know. are you kidding? She's like, no, no, it's made with all kinds of chemicals. She was 100% serious. The deodorant's going to give, uh, is going to give me cancer, but uh, that cigarette's fine. But the cigarettes are not going, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's, anyway, don't do drugs. Yeah. That's all I have to say, yeah. Don't do so, drugs. You know what, smoke, weed, weed. You know it's great. Do CBD oil, but stay away away from all the hard stuff. It's bad for you. Man, I grew up in an era where it was made out to be cool. Yeah, the '90s bands that were popular really glamorized addiction. Yeah, they made it seem like a really really cool thing. Yeah, I remember seeing recently a home video that Ministry did from touring in the 90s and they've got needles coming out of their arms like I, I couldn't believe it and I think back to those days hearing about all the heroin addictions and all that and so many of those people are dead now and it's it's yeah. really weird thinking back because I know that drugs are still glamorized to some degree like pills are yeah but I think that yep. overall this is just my impression but it seems like overall the industry has gotten smarter about this topic. To a degree. I think you can no longer show up to work high. Yes. <laughs> I think uh, the youth are still, st uh, are actually still doing it. Um, actually lost well, my neighbor about a year and a half ago. He was a young man and he did a bump and the bump, the bump was laced. Sorry to hear that. So I think the industry is a little bit more more kind of wise because of the fact that they know that if they do something, you could kill them and... Yeah, you know what? People do not want to die. Yeah, and I think that also the the business side of it, there isn't the same kind of stupid money flying around. And uh, yeah, yeah, nobody wants to nobody wants to take a chance on something like that. Yeah, true. Agreed. Agreed. Before we wrap up, I've got some questions from our audience that I'd like to ask you because they were super stoked that you're coming on. David Power saying, do you look back to the early days and the peers you started out with in and around Toronto and think 
about how such an amazing group of talented people gathered together. And do you ever think there was a recognition of such talent? Yeah, yeah. I think, well, my feeling is is that I came through at the best time. You know, I got to see and meet and hang out with some incredible, credible, credible people. Every day, Peter Gabriel would come in the door and go, hello, Garth. I go, hi, Peter. That's crazy. Right? And you know what? Nice, nice guy. He would take the time to say hi. And you know what? You look back at all those times and days to where they were incredibly talented people like uh, like to watch the first Peter Gabriel record being made live off the floor was insane, you know? Yeah, that's history. There was no, we're going to get the drums first, and then we're going to edit the drums, and then we're going to get the bass, well, then we're going to edit the bass, and then we're going to do the vocals, but you only have to sing me the first chorus, and then I'll fly it. You know, it was like, they worked it, and they played, and they played with such with such vigor and and just passion, you know. So those early days are special, and I actually actually miss it, you know, because nobody. Well, there's very few bands that actually could go into the studio and play play live. It's a total rarity. It's very rare. Yeah, you know, it's sad. Yeah, I think that um. At least in my world, heavy music, I could think of like once a year or something <laughs> that a band could come in and really lay it down Yeah, that in that way. Question from Sean Allen Roberto Frost, which is, he has two. First one is, Biffy Clyro's Only Revolutions and Opposites has some of my favorite rock band sounds, you know, vocals, right, bass, right, et cetera. Right. I was wondering if you might discuss how you went about creating those sounds with Biffy. How much of it was already there, uh, meaning just in how they play and right. who they are, and how much of it did you have to finesse? Uh, the funny thing is when we did Opposites, uh, that was record number three, and I had told Ben, the drummer, I said, do you know the lyrics yet? He said, yeah, I do. I said, okay, so when you're playing the drum parts, sing. And when you're singing, you can only keep time. And he went, I said, so let's go through the songs, and he would keep time and sing the songs in his head so that he never got in the way of actually Simon, the singer. The things that I kind of helped them with was for them to be able to actually listen to each other. Because I, I do find like a lot of bands today that when they're playing, you go, stop, what, what, what are you play? paying playing on the bass part? And, and of course, the bass player plays the part. And I said, and what are you doing on the drums? And of course they go, oh, is that what you're playing? I, I didn't know that. So part of my job is to teach the bands how to listen to each other. And I spend like a lot of time with actually Simon and James and Ben that they began to realize that everything has a space and everything has a part. And if you're doing a big drum fill over a very kind of important vocal, then that'll get in the way. Something has to give, and it's always going to be the drum fill has to go. My uh, my buddy was actually working with actually Max Martin, and he, he was doing drums on this one song, and the drummer played this incredible fill, and the and my buddy went to Max, that's a brilliant fill, and Max 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 goes, quote, that fill will cost me three million dollars <laughs> because that that was a you know phenomenal fill but wrong for the song yeah 
man, that is such a brilliant tip to give a musician. Yeah. When you think about the idea of playing something more musically, it's uh, or play the right part for the song. These are easy things to say, but when it comes to actually doing it, it's hard to really define it. So what you just said, sing along, that's perfect because then by singing along, the space is already ingrained. It's in their head. Yeah. They know where to put it instinctually because they can feel where the breaks are or where they need to emphasize something. Yeah. I always do the stress point to where like I tell a band, I said, you know the song, Living on a Prayer? They go, yeah, by Bon Jovi. Yeah, yeah. I go, you know what? I was at the show and there were 80,000 people. And they go, yeah. And I go, you know when the song stops and it modulates? And the whole band stopped after you've had the modulation. And John Bon Jovi put out the mic and 80,000 people were singing, uh, I think it's a drum part. And they went, they were singing the drum part? I go, no, they were singing the fucking lyric. <laughs> Vocals are the most important thing that we do with any record. And that was the whole thing about with actually Biffy Clyro was we spend like a lot of time making sure that everything fit. That's great. His second question was, could you discuss a little more broadly how you approach taking a band or an artist's sound and then taking it further? Okay, there's a very funny story. When I was working with actually Michael Wagner, we were doing this one band, and the guitar player said, I really want that Eddie Van Halen sound. And Michael went, okay. Michael got up out of his chair, went went over to the phone. This is in the day, <laughs> this is in the day when we didn't have cell phones. And he called up Eddie Van Halen. And the guitar player's going, dude, fuck, what, what are you doing? Said, mate, the only way that we're going to get you that sound is to get him to come in and play your parts. Yeah. And I I learned that day the most insane I love that. the most insane valuable lesson. You can only work with what you have. Get that that's your person's sound. What my theory is you have to get them to go go through every amp cabinet, find out what they like, and then spend spend the time getting their sound right. It's also a big part of everybody playing other right parts. You know. Yeah, that's brilliant. Last question here. This is from Michael McDonald. He says, "Sorry to be so broad, but I just want to hear." a bit about recording the self-titled Rage Against the Machine record. <laughs> was it mostly track live? How was it trying to capture the energy of the band? Is there anything very memorable about making such an iconic album? And I'll add this. Did you know at the time that you were making something iconic? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we did. We did the record actually 30, 30 days. Uh, the budget was 90 grand. I was in the middle of this other record. I got asked by Michael Gold, Goldstone to go see the band. I was in this little Van Nuys probably practice place, probably 12 feet by 14 foot room, and they played me three uh, songs. Uh, my jaw dropped because I'd never heard anything like the hiss before. Like, it was, oh my God. Now... I, I got asked to do, do do this record. I did not want to basically fuck it up. I, I, I did not want to take them into the studio and put headphones on them 
and have their little space that they can only go so so far because of the headphone cable. So I actually brought in a full concert PA system. I put Tim and Tom's amps in the back room. I put Brad uh, behind the PA system, and I had Zach holding actually 58. And we made their live show coming out of the speakers. So all of our sounds that we were getting coming through the mics ended up going back out through the PA system. So we literally captured a lot of it live off the floor because I didn't want to do a let's get the drums and then let's get the bass and then let's get the guitars. A lot of it was uh, I was live. There's one song that if you listen to Settle for, uh, the one song, it's a ballad, Settle for Nothing. Tom wanted to redo his solo. Because of how we did, did, did the record, the old solo bled through actually Brad's mics. You can hear the old solo coming through the actual song, so it sounds like it was a delay. That's really, really cool, actually. Yeah, so you should go listen to it because it sounds like Tom plays, and then you can hear in the background of the old solo. I'm going to go listen to that, actually. Yeah, so that record was done literally live off the floor. Um, I was the one that made them bring in their friends to come and sit and actually watch them record because I really wanted that live atmosphere. I guess one of the things that I've noticed on a lot of uh, heavy albums is that when you have a band that basically sounds like an explosion of energy, it's very rare to actually get that captured. I think it's because of that split up way of tracking the overdubbing style. Yeah. I do think that there's a lot to it that the energy is greater than the individual parts. Yeah. And so that special sauce only comes out when those people are doing what they do together. Yeah, yeah. I do think Brad is probably one of the most underrated drummers Absolutely. that I've seen. And because he he has actually pocket and he plays with such a feel and it's like he's kind of shadowed by Zach and and uh, Tom. But Brad and Tim are the heartbeat of that band. And band is nothing without a rhythm section, you know? Exactly. Well, Garth Richardson Thank you so much for coming on the URM podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been fun. Yeah, dude. It was really cool talking to you. It's been a blast. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio, And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.